Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 266, being recorded on Thursday, June 10th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Here at the Jason and Scott Show headquarters, we are always on the lookout uh, for exciting new startups that are innovating around some of our favorite topics uh, of e-commerce, payments, uh, drones, uh, AV, all that good stuff. One of our favorite trends is brands going direct. One startup with a very innovative approach on this trend is called Minoan, and we are very excited to have the founder and CEO, Mark Hostovsky, on the show. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. It's nice to hear. I've heard the intro many times as a listener, so cool to hear it as a uh, guest now. We are honored to have you as a guest. And Mark, this is not your first rodeo in commerce, so uh, do you want to tell our guests or our, our listeners a little bit about uh, uh, your e-commerce background and how you you came to start the company? Yeah, sure. So I was an early employee at Jet.com. Um, yeah, I, I uh, met basically Scott Hilton and some of the early team at an at a Le Pan Quotidien. I never know how to say it, but the uh, sandwich shop in New York City. Um, I, when I was working at, actually at a research firm, um, yeah, and, and got sold on sort of the mission of fixing the economics of e-commerce, um, you know, specifically like looking at how Amazon had built this entire infrastructure optimized around getting you one package uh, as quickly as possible, which is very consumer friendly, but uh, economically challenging. Um, and so creating this new e-commerce model where you can incentivize, uh, yeah, customers basically to take actions that improve the economics of the order, like bundling more items together, deferring for slower shipping. Uh, and basically after listening to Scott and team talk about jet, uh, for like 30, 40 minutes, I went back to my, uh, old job at the time and was like, how could I possibly, you know, keep selling keep this job of selling research i know there's this awesome company uh really shaking things up and uh yeah joined the company pre-launch was there for the growth from zero to a billion dollar annualized run rate in 10 months got to work really closely with mark uh, and liza and the great elite team there and then um yeah through the walmart acquisition took over a pretty large PL in hard lines which is sort of where my uh, interest in this concept of native retail came about. Very cool. Um, and then uh, I'm always excited to, you know, when folks go from kind of having a job to starting a business, was this something you always wanted to do to take the entrepreneurial plunge? Or um, did you just kind of say, uh, I've got this killer idea and I can't not do it? Or, or what what led you to entrepreneurship? Yeah, I've always wanted to to start 
something. I'm a big student of entrepreneurship and I love reading memoirs of entrepreneurs. I did, uh, before Manoa and I did, uh, start a company called tail your, which was, uh, pretty much a virtual tailoring, uh, which was my first run in with the entrepreneurial buzzsaw. I think in this case, um, like it was always one of those things was like one day I will start a company. I didn't necessarily plan on doing it on a certain timeline, but it was sort of a combination of just being, I was just consumed by this idea of like, I was really frustrated in trying to create really strong product experiences for our customers. Um, and so I'd say it was sort of a combination of like, I've always been interested, always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but also had one of these problems that was like, you know, I, was, I would think about it before I go to bed. And then like an hour or two later, I'm still thinking about it and putting notes in my phone. And so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to like go after this and do some research uh, and see if this, this, you know, what eventually became a known could be a real business. Yeah. And uh, let's do good. Uh, let's take one step back on jet. Tell us a little bit more about what you did there. Were you on, you know, marketplaces have, have a couple sides. There's kind of the working with um, suppliers or brands to bring kind of, you know, product into the marketplace. And then there's the demand gen side, which did, which, which pieces did you work on while you were there? Yeah. It's funny because I did probably three different things in a very short amount of time, just because we were growing the pace of growth was just, uh, it was unlike anything I had seen and, and probably will ever see again. So when we started, I was in more of a sales role. Um, so I was pitching retailers to come onto the platform, um, like the vitamin shops, sports authorities, GNCs, Toys R Us's, uh, of the world. Um, then. Basically, Side note, all, every company you just mentioned is no longer in business. Yeah, I almost said a little uh, RIT for for <laughs> for promote. They're either not in business or, or no longer in business or not doing well, which is good because you always want to sell to someone who's doing really, really well or really, really poorly. It's the people in the middle who don't really have like an impetus to take action. Um, but basically, we were pitching them on like a new model of e-commerce where you know, it, it, on Amazon, your competitiveness is solely dictated by the prices you set. And so that's tough for these larger, you know, it, it's, it's tougher for these larger companies to compete um, with like smaller sellers who could drop price, who are getting stuff that's overstocked, et cetera. And so we were sort of pitching this uh, model where it's like, hey, it, on Jet, yeah, of course, price is important, but also uh, how your inventory is commingled to reduce split shipping gives you an advantage or infrastructure, how many distribution centers you have. If you're closer to more customers and it's uh, less costly to ship to them, that gives you an advantage. So you're not competing on price alone, um, which is really compelling for these uh, retailers who are getting crushed on, you know, they weren't able to even price competitively. Um, and anyway, so we pitched, we brought on a lot of retailers and then Scott Hilton, uh, the chief revenue officer, all of a sudden, I was like, okay, now that we have all these retailers on board, we actually need people to manage uh, manage them and manage categories. And so the category development team, which was going out to do this business development, uh, most of that team then transitioned to category management. And so I uh, took over the PL basically for sporting goods, arts, crafts, and uh, music, which is why I went to NAM, uh, Jason, which we had talked about, I think, uh, right before the, the podcast. And I was also managing our third-party integration partnerships. And so Channel Advisor, Commerce Hub, that's 
that's sort of how I actually got to know you, Scott, and going to a catalyst uh, and seeing you speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after the the jet acquisition took over a much larger PL at Walmart uh, in the hardlines category. Uh, it was about a $400 million business, which was huge for me, uh, for Walmart. That's uh, peanuts, uh, surprisingly. I mean, the scale of Walmart is something that I think a lot of people in retail people understand, but people who are less familiar with retail, just like at market caps, uh, don't understand like quite how much money flows through. It's crazy that, that $400 million a year is like a starter merchant. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was peanuts to them. I mean, they do over $500 billion a year. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that was sort of my journey from Jet uh, into Walmart. Cool. Can you tell us a, a fun Mark Lori story that's uh, appropriate for family listeners? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I can't. I mean, he is relentlessly. I, I think he has a couple superpowers. One of them is just relentless optimism. Um, it was crazy how fast we were moving, how quickly we were changing things. Um, and, uh, he's just like rock solid all the time. He's constantly problem solving. And so, and the other superpower he has, I think is just obsessive thought. Like he really sits and thinks about and stews on ideas for a long, 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 long time. Uh, and so the things that he's doing are incredibly well thought out. Um, and that was sort of my overall impression of him was impressive. I think there, I don't know if there are any like fun stories, um, specifically, like there are certainly crazy moments at jet, like on launch night, um, where we had some, uh, technical, you know, issues and we had like, we had like 60, 70 person teams staying in the office till four in the morning to manually, route orders uh, just so we could get all the customer, all the orders out and keeping customers happy. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think. Yeah. I don't know if there are any specific like crazy Mark Lowry stories that. Well, uh, I'll say a sure. couple and you can verify if they're true or not. So I heard that he, like one of his slogans was the company would either be billions or body bags. Is that billions a, or body bags? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That was our sort of rallying <laughs> cry. <laughs> yeah. I told so. some people and they're like horrified by that. They were like, that's terrible. I was like, well, it's kind of, Kind of true. Yeah, he's just as real. He's like yeah. this model. Only we are in a scale game. E-commerce yeah. is a scale game, and so, yeah. and there's big rewards, fees, the billions. If you can mm-hmm. figure it out, and if you can't get the scale, he was very he was very clear about that. He's like, if we can't get the scale, the economics don't work. And so, yeah. you know, those are the body bags. Maybe a little bit morbid, but it got the point across in a way, and it was exciting for us. You know, it's like a good way to get the team excited and motivated to make sure that it was the billions and not the body bags. Yeah. It's i uh, I've been reading a lot about persuasion and anything that can have a visual. And whenever I hear that, I kind of have the visual of a fork in the road and like a rainbow and a pot of gold on one side and a body bag on the other. It's like, <laughs> it's like, a, it's like, real, it's like, for some reason that phrase has like a very visual kind of thing that kind of come, comes to me when, when people say it. Yeah. And then uh, uh, let's see, what was another one? Um, oh, there was like this kind of extreme transparency in the company where everyone could see what everyone was making. And it, it was kind of a huge distraction for a while. And I, I guess they either got through that or they turned it off. Is that, were you there for that part? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah. I mean that, so I actually really appreciated that. And it's something I'm bringing to someone Owen. So there's, and, and this isn't, you know, Ray Dalio talks about this a lot as well in, in principles, but uh, trust, transparency, and fairness were the three values. And so 
there are a few ways that they put in, that in the practice. One is that comp was fully transparent, um, even down to like equity grant, like dollar equity grant. So you could understand if you understood someone's level, you knew exactly how much they made and the dollar value of the equity that they received um, when they joined. And so that that started um, a little bit after I got there, like that complete transparency. But when I but even when I had joined, you know, the salaries were fixed and there was like no negotiation. I was like, listen, this is the price. This is the salary for this level. You get promoted at this level. Um, there's no bans. Um, and the other thing that's great is he would go and have his board meetings or uh, investor presentations, and then he would come right back and present, you know, the entire board meeting. Maybe there's some things that were uh, removed, but he would present that entire board meeting deck to the entire team, which is cool because. Um, you really felt like you had ownership of the business. Like, it's like, oh, okay, I understand like how he's presenting this too. And for an aspiring entrepreneur like myself, I mean, I, I loved it. This was like, it was like getting paid to get an MBA, you know, seeing how he thought about the business, how he pitched investors, how he thought about strategy. Um, and so it worked. I mean, yeah, I think there were probably circumstances where the transparency might've irked some, you know, like people, who didn't want people knowing how much they made and stuff like that. But for the most part, we were all on board with it. Now, when we, now when, when it became Walmart, uh, that was, you know, <laughs> then it, it's a little bit of a different story. So that uh, dissipated a little bit. Did Walmart make you put up those signs they have in all their meeting rooms where it's like, you know, return all the pencils to the, <laughs> to the, the office supply room and uh, only sharpen it if you're, you're down to the nub? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. There was Talk like, about a culture uh, clash. Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, there was some the, the biggest change for me was around samples. Um, just because when you're a jet, it's like it it's really easy to be an e-commerce merchant and never actually touch or use the products that you're selling. Um, and not really know like how the customer is experiencing them. And so one thing that's important to us is like, well, let's get a sample. Let's see, like, okay, this is our best-selling treadmill. Like, how is it? Is it is it good? Like, you know, it's best-selling, but how does it hold up? And it, at a Walmart, um, and then the samples, we would just like, you know, people would like take them home, basically. Uh, and at Walmart, there's a very strict, like no samples policy or, or getting samples, but you had to, you know, people can like take them home because there's really more tied to like a bribery um, policy, which made sense because if you look at the history of, I mean, Walmart was in like the 80s and 90s. And these are all like, I don't know if this is folklore or true, but there are stories of like buyers being offered Ferraris to to work with specific suppliers or vendors. And for that supplier or vendor, it is very much worth the money to give a buyer a Ferrari if it gets you into the stores because they're just moving so much volume. And so they started cracking down on uh, like bribery and and not even just bribery, but like gifts. So when we would go and meet with vendors, um, if, if like we would meet with some of our larger fitness vendors and they would have a spread or like a bottle of water. And you'd have to, uh, if you took a bottle of water, you're supposed to leave some cash uh, behind, um, which we would do. Um, but that was like so surprising to me. I was like, uh, but it makes sense. Like it, it's, you know, it, that was the big difference between a small, company and a big company with um that's been around for a longer time and needed more rules and had way more employees um so it's not necessarily that like 
I, I understood why these rules were in place, but for me, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely a bit of a culture clash. That's for sure. Yeah. And, uh, in fairness to some of the big companies, most of those rules are in place because of bad prior incidents. Right. Yeah. And in the case of Walmart, there, there were execs like in jail in Brazil around corruption. Right. And so, okay. (laughs) So they were, you know, uh, somewhat, you know, there's a lot of protecting people from themselves in those rules, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 It makes sense. I mean, they're in a powerful position and it's easy to be tempted. So just like put the rules in place that, uh, yeah, it is. It's funny though. I've been calling on Walmart for for probably thirty years, and I distinctly remember like the first time going to a meeting in Bentonville, sitting down, and and the merchant's like, uh, "Hey, can I offer you a bottle of water?" And I'm like, "Oh, sure, that'd be great." And he pops it down. He's like, "That'll be thirty five cents," because <laughs> there's no there's no uh, gratuities going in either direction. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, it's strictly business. And those rooms are, are clearly strictly business as well. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Back in the it's it it's upgraded a little bit, but back in those days they were literally like sawhorses and plywood <laughs> tables and like the the walls were grid wall so that you know people could come in and hang their products. Yeah. And uh it was super annoying because I would come in, I would always have to rent a screen, like a and I don't mean like a video screen in those days. I mean like a like a projector screen and schlep it in because Walmart didn't have one. And I'm like, they're <laughs> they're trying to send the message that they're cheap, but they're actually causing me to spend two hundred dollars every single time I come here. Oh yeah. We we had um we had one of our large fitness vendors uh when while I was there and in Bentonville, we didn't have room. They wanted to come and bring a bunch of uh products and and demo them and we're like there's not room like we don't have room for all this and so they rented a um like an rv basically or like a huge trailer and put a bunch of them in the back and we went outside and they had this like uh thing that they had towed over that had all their products in them it was like wow you guys it was that was the exact response that sort of the head of hardline said it was like you spent all this money <laughs> just to show us you know, these products when uh you know we were pushing for lower costs so yeah that's interesting yeah. like the yeah you got to do what you got to do to get in to, to get in front of for sure but listen enough about walmart let's pivot to minoan uh what is the elevator pitch yeah minoan is is essentially a platform for native retail and native retail uh, is about using products in the way that they were designed to be used. And so for a hairdryer, you know, in native retail, you're using that hairdryer when you're, when your hair is wet, you know, you're coming out of the shower and your hair is wet. You're using that hairdryer to dry and style your hair, which is what the, you know, the product managers and engineers and designers who are creating that product, they're designing it to be really, really good at exactly that, as opposed to e-commerce, where when you're interacting with a product, it is, you know, uh, abstractly represented on a screen and actually concretely sitting in a warehouse somewhere. And then when you're interacting with those products in stores, oftentimes they're deconstructed, uh, placed in display cases, crammed on shelves that are optimized on dollar per square foot, you know, not necessarily on uh, creating really strong product uh, consumer interactions. Um, yeah. And so native retail is all about like getting people to actually use the products and the way they were designed to be used. And then 
uh, if they really, really like them, making it easy for them to buy through like a frictionless add to cart and, and checkout process. Nice. Uh, so I love the concept and I do want to drill down a bit more, but maybe just to make it really concrete for listeners, uh, let, let's talk about like a typical customer experience. So the, the one I've read about is in hotel rooms. Yeah. So our foothold right now is really in boutique hospitality. And so um, we work with a lot of boutique hotels to make their experience or like short-term rentals to make their experiences uh, shoppable to guests. So the example would be like, you know, if you're uh, uh, staying in an Airbnb and you're sleeping on the mattress and you're like, man, this is the best night's sleep I've ever gotten. What is this thing? Instead of ripping off the sheets and trying to find the tag, you know, in Minoan, you can understand what, what the mattress is or what the hair dryer is that you're using or the speaker system that, that they have offered or the fitness equipment or the appliances, the artwork, you know, the soaps, the shampoos, like any of the products that you're going to be interacting with during your stay um, that are yours, you know, for the weekend. Uh, we tell you a little bit more about them through this digital narrative, which is basically like a, a, a tailored e-commerce site specifically for the guests and tailored to their environment, um, where if they really like something, they can buy it and it'll be waiting for them by the time they get home. That's awesome. Uh, I'm a big fan of that customer experience. On a, on a small scale, I spent a, a, a big chunk of the early part of my career at Best Buy and Target. And for a, for a while, my, my whole role was um, what I called taking products out of product jail. Like we, we had all these products that That's like a great name for it. we literally locked in a, like a display case, like a glass case or in Best Buy's case, a steel cage. And this is not going to be shocking. It's painfully obvious in hindsight, but like you take the digital camera out of the steel cage and you let customers touch it in the store and you sell dramatically more of them. Yeah. I mean, that's such a, so one of our investors and advisor, Joanne Peck, um, she's one of the, the world's foremost experts in like haptics and proprioception within consumer retail, which is basically like touch. Um, and so she's proven over and over again, that uh, first of all, individuals have sort of like a need for touch, uh, like scale. And so there are a lot of consumers that have a very high, they call it NFT. So this is before NFTs meant non-fungible <laughs> tokens. NFT meant uh, need for touch. And there's a ton of research that she's done that shows that, yeah, when you get products in people's hands, like willingness to pay goes up, conversion goes up, uh, recall goes up, like just memory of that brand and of that product increases dramatically. And then there's also stories of like, even in Toys R Us, I spoke to someone who's a merchant in Toys R Us years ago in, uh, in the earlier days. I mean, I guess we're still in the early days, but really in like the ideation phase of Minoan. And she would say that uh, a lot of Toys R Us stores had this sort of like play box or like sandbox area where people could use toys and whatever products they put in that environment were like their best sellers. Um and there's a lot of, there's a lot of like anecdotal pieces of, of see, people saying the same thing. Like John Foley, the founder of Peloton, I went to go see his How I Built This, which was uh, done live in New York City. And Guy Raz was asking him, you know, why do you keep investing in stores? Like, why do you keep opening more and more stores? It seems like you could do pretty well without the stores and that, you know, most companies are going in the opposite direction. They're, they're investing in less stores. And he said... Because I'm telling you, when I could get someone on this bike, pedaling, listening to the music in the moment, it was 50-50, 50-50 on whether or not they're going to spend 2800 bucks right then and there and bring this thing home. 
And so this, you know, what, what, the, the idea of native retail or, I mean, car rental, like renting a car and using it is, is native. We're not necessarily inventing the category. I think what we're trying to do is build a platform uh, to make it a little more frictionless and bring it to life in more use cases. Like, I really just believe that the best product experiences don't happen on shelves and they don't happen on screens. They happen in the wild. And so uh, creating a platform where spaces that are creating these meaningful product experiences can more easily integrate retail and, and monetize it. Um, and then making it easier for brands to access these spaces at scale, create meaningful customer moments, create a little bit of one-on-time, one-on-one time with between you know guests in these properties and their products, where there's no salesperson over your shoulder, there's no, you know, it's just you and the product. And so uh, that that's what we're yeah. very passionate about. Well, no, I love it. And uh, I get the risk of getting slightly psychology geeky. Um, there's this uh, psychological principle called the endowment effect. In oh, same- yeah. We can geek out if you want. I've yeah. done a ton of, in- <laughs> yeah, we can so- go there because that's a huge, that's actually a huge tenant of how we design our yeah. experiences with, uh, with guests. And so I mean, do, you, do, do we, do we go down that? Uh, well, that so like at a super high level, the, the principle is um, I hand you like the, the actual psych- psychology experiment started out with like coffee mugs, but like I hand you any object that, that digital camera I'm trying to sell you in target or, uh, that, that bespoke coffee maker in the, the boutique hotel that you're selling. Um, and merely by the fact that you receive that product, or even if I can just make you imagine, I handed it to you, by the way, um, as soon as you imagine owning it, it's more valuable to you. And uh, the decision you now have to make is, am I going to give this back or am I going to keep it, right? And giving something back is a loss. And so then this, like, powerful psychological trigger of loss aversion kicks in. And so it's there. Uh, so much of selling is about getting someone to physically, uh, viscerally imagine that they own that product. And then you've kind of you've you've gotten them over the hump. Yeah. Exactly. It's really like a tenant of basically psychological ownership, which is the feeling of, uh, you know, it's possessiveness, the feeling that something is yours, which, you know, psychological ownership preceded legal ownership. Like the reason we have legal ownership is because humans naturally are possessive. And uh, I'm I'm also an evolution uh, geek or anything about just like looking at like humans over time. But we were naturally possessive. And so we had to, we had to create rules so that people wouldn't like, you know, hurt each other over land or over uh, these things. And um, yeah, and psychological ownership can be really powerful. I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that psychological ownership is more powerful than legal ownership. And that comes to, uh, they've done a ton of research around that in like equity at startups. And it's like the feeling that someone owns or is a big part of a company um, typically uh, is correlated with like higher performance or, or higher success than just legal ownership, you know, just giving someone ownership in the company. And, and you can use legal ownership as a tool to accelerate uh, psychological ownership. Like if you give someone legal ownership, then you can more easily get them to feel like a psychological owner. But yeah, in our, in our context, like hospitality is actually a perfect environment for sales to occur because psychological ownership has three antecedents. 
So in order for psychological ownership to occur, there's sort of three things that uh, if you can do those things, if you can do one of the three, even like you're more likely to create this, you know, feeling of the endowment effect and, and people really wanting to hold on to something. One is the ability to control. They use the term target. So one is the ability to control a target. And so that would be like if you do like a desk chair example, um, being able to uh, like move it around or uh, set it to your settings, you know, get it on the right lean, the right height, like controlling it, manipulating it to your liking. Uh, the second one is intimate knowledge uh, of a product. So um, really understanding like its particular settings, being comfortable using it, uh, understanding its features. Uh, and then the third one is investment of the self. And so spending either money or time on something uh, is a third one. And so if you can do those three things, if you can have someone sort of manipulate or control a target, if you can have someone gain intimate knowledge uh, about a target, if you can get someone to invest either time or money into a target, uh, you have this really powerful uh, effective psychological ownership and then uh, willingness to pay goes up, recall goes up. Uh, conversion goes up. And this is the stuff that Joanne Peck has really studied in retail. And so in our environments, uh, and we see this in company, we have some spaces that uh, in the first quarter, we're converting at 25%. It's like one out of every four people uh, going to one property in particular, in my mind, I'm thinking of, we're buying something. Um, and so when it's done well, it can be really, really powerful and interesting. And the psychology part of it is something that that's what I'm most excited about incorporating sort of into these guest experiences. Um, and we're still in the very, very early day. You know, we have a lot more optimization to do uh, on that yeah. side. That's uh 25% conversion. That's like getting up into the like get spiffy territory. That's crazy talk. Um, yeah. The, I, the other half of your model that's I think is also super interesting is I talk a lot these days about the unbundling of the shopping experience. And, and by that, what I mean is, uh, in the olden days, like all the phases of buying something out of necessity and convenience had to be bundled together. So you, you'd go to a store and that's where you discovered products that you, then you did your consideration in the aisle, then you did your purchase and the store fulfilled those goods for you. But one of, one of the things that, uh, digital and technology have enabled is kind of the unbundling of, of that, right? And so today you're, you're way more likely to discover a product you 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 have to have on TikTok than you are in a shelf, right? And yeah. you're likely to do your consideration like, you know, while reading rings and reviews on Amazon and then you do your fulfillment for curbside pickup or whatever the case is. And so to me the you know, it, it feels like you're you're leaning into that that uh um endowment effect, but you're also kind of leaning into the unbundling that you're you're creating awareness and consideration like at the point of use instead of like forcing someone to go to a shopping destination to do it. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's, um, e-commerce is, it's, I mean, I'm on an e-commerce podcast. It's like, I, I, there are so many things that I love about e-commerce, but the more time that I spent in it, I just got really frustrated in, um, it's impossible. The reality is there's just a lot of wiring that goes into how we perceive our, the world around us. And e-commerce can only ever really tap into visual stimulus and visual representation of a product, which to be honest, like you can, that can take you far. I mean, I buy, I buy like, you know, 
60, 70% of stuff I buy, uh, I buy online. Um, but there are also a lot of like gaps there. There are lots of sort of gotchas and there's anyone who has shopped online has experienced this sort of mismatch of like you receive something that wasn't necessarily what you thought it was or was as advertised. And the reality is like, it's just a hypothesis, you know, like it, the, if we're thinking about shopping in like sort of the rational linear way of like identifying a problem, doing your research, uh, making a purchase decision and then experiencing it, um, you know, like when you identify the problem, you, you then start to like forge a hypothesis. So it's like, okay, I, I need a new mattress. That's a problem. Uh, my hypothesis is that Casper is going to be a really good mattress for me and I'm going to sleep well on it. That's the problem I'm trying to solve. And then you do things to strengthen that high hypothesis. You can read reviews, you can watch videos, you can read about their hybrid technology, but ultimately you don't really prove that that hypothesis is not concluded or proven or conclusive until it's in your house and you are sleeping on it. You've slept on it for a couple nights in a row. Um, and there are just lots of times where the hypothesis can be incorrect, uh, despite the amount of information that you can get about products online. And I think, yeah, for me, it's that the, it's like foolproof, you know, like you're using it the way that you would use it in your home. So if you like it, buy it. Um, if you don't like it, yeah, no problem. This what off our back, like go on and, and go discover other cool products that you might like. Um, I don't even know if I, I kind of think I took your answer and went on to my own like random tangent, which I can do sometimes because I'm from uh, Boston, but <laughs> hopefully that, hopefully it, it uh, you, you get what I'm saying. It's a founder thing. You're passionate. That yeah. A founder thing or just uh, an eccentric thing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's talk through the customer experience. So I go to an air and I'm a, you know, I go to an Airbnb or maybe a, you know, a, a resort or something and I walk in and, you know, is there a wall of QR codes? Is there a locked box that I slide my credit card into? Um, you know, how, how does this work? What's the, what's the user experience? Yeah. So any space that we work with um, contractually agrees to come marketing. And so we think about that in digital touch points and physical touch points. And so the guest experience would basically be, uh, in most cases, uh, when you get your booking confirmation email or in your email that is like leading up to your stay, maybe a day or two before your stay, there will be a little, uh, you know, notice in that email that says, hey, we put a tremendous amount of thought into curating each and every product and amenity in the space. Um, if you want a sneak peek of what's waiting for you, click here. And so that'll take you to this uh, digital, basically empathize shoppable experience that we've built for that property with images of the property. Each room in the property has its own like page, basically with the products. Each brand has its own brand page. Um, and so there's this, this, yeah, this it's this experience that is meant to harmonize with the physical experience of being in that space. Uh, then when you arrive at the property, yes, there usually uh, or always is a physical touch point which is right now we're doing QR codes. We're also looking at, um, there's some, there's some other technologies you can use to do, uh, like physical to digital. Um, and sometimes that's like a note card. Sometimes it's booklets. Um, we're exploring, like, this is what's fun is sort of thinking about we, in e-commerce, you think about driving visits and you think about it in, um, you know, from like channels, 
uh, primarily or different areas. For us, we think about visits as like, okay, what are like the moments during this guest experience where, where someone could feel compelled to learn a little bit more about the product? And so, um, you know, we're still thinking about where these physical touch points could occur, but there will be QR codes on the property. And then usually there's also inclusion in a post-state email where the language is a little more like, you know, you know, found something you like or missing any element of the experience, like you can, you know, bring it home with you. Um, and so that's how we're sort of integrating the shopability into the, the guest experience. Okay. So then I go in there and do you, you know, so you mentioned hairdryer, Casper, is there going to be like, um, you know, is your vision that you learn about Jason and then you set up a little podcast thing and he gets super excited because he sees a microphone there or you learn about me and there's kind of a drone and a cool star Wars thing, <laughs> or, or is it mostly like in context stuff? There's nothing kind of, you know, that that's been injected into the experience. Yeah. So it's in context. Stuff. So I do have this larger vision and there are some hospitality companies that share this around actually being able to tailor specific products to the guest before their stay. So even like replacing the mattress to a mattress brand they want to try or bringing in things that you know they will like. Now, that's very labor intensive. And so we're not even, I mean, we're, we don't, we're not doing anything like that now. We're not focused on it. Right now, it's just contextual commerce really. So it's like, you know, you need to go to sleep. Here are things that will help you sleep. Here's a little more information about the linens, the pillows, the bedding, you know, whatever it may be. Um, but certainly in the future, I mean, we're thinking about we're thinking about ways you can tailor it to the specific user um, as well. And then just figuring out operationally how you can do that in a way that's uh, either in line with, like with hotels, they already already are doing things between guest stays and like flipping rooms and cleaning rooms. And so like, could you do things in a way that are just integrated into that and easy or finding, you know, finding a way to just solve for sort of that operational challenge of changing things out. Got it. And then over, so in my mind, everything's a marketplace because that's my role here on the Jason Scott show. So, so you've got the, that's the buy side and then the sell side, you know, I I think one of the things you guys do that I teased at the top is you're working directly with the brands to, to get them in there. Not, not like a retailer, right? So it's not like there's a bed, bath and beyond is sitting in the middle of these things or, or home goods or, or a retailer. You're, you're kind of the, the quote unquote retailer here, the market maker, the marketplace that's bringing these together. It, it kind of reminds me we had on the show Zola, um, which which really yeah. kind of you know turned upside down the wedding registry by by kind of bringing unique brands direct in there, and it, it kind of um, you know it. I think it's interesting because brands seem to really really be leaning into any direct experience. So so what if you what you know a do I have that right? And then b are you finding brands are like super receptive to this, or you have to like really convince them to do it? No, you're you're definitely right. And I I have spent a lot of time learning uh, from folks at Zola and asking uh, people their questions about so, you know there are a lot of similarities in sort of how we we are operating um and it's, it's really we're just trying to help brands increase their own audience like um and that's what makes us different than you know that's what we have in common with uh zola and not in common with like an amazon i know you, you guys talk a lot about it on the podcast like amazon's goal is to increase uh lifetime value with the customer and not have the brand increase lifetime value like they want you coming back to amazon to buy things they don't want you buying something from uh, Casper on Amazon and then going and, and replenishing or buying stuff at Casper.com. 
Our model is, is different. Our model is about discovery and helping that brand acquire a customer and then build that lifetime value directly with the customer. And that's something that, yeah, is super attractive um, to brands. I mean, it is tough. It is. Um, there's a book called Sub- Subprime Attention Crisis, um, which I think is such a great term because it is it is tough to get attention and out there right now if you're a, a direct consumer brand. And there's more brands than there than there have ever been. You know, the barriers to entry and creating a brand have dropped precipitously. It's like easier never to source a manufacturer. It's easier never to to build a website. It's easier than ever to launch to, to do fulfillment and completely outsource it and have it be reliable. It's easier than ever to target consumers uh, and be very targeted. Um, and so you have a ton of brands uh, and obviously a ton of money that's going to Facebook and, and Google. Um, but the attention is, is challenging. And so, yeah, brands are very interested in the idea of having someone in a space over the course of three or four days using their products specifically for the job to be done, you know, using their mattress to sleep on, using their cookware to actually prepare a meal, uh, using their speaker system to create a mood with music. Um, and so our, our hit rate with brands, like our conversion rate with brands is very, very high in terms of like sales. It's like a, a high, a very high percentage of the brands that we talk to about the platform do end up joining. Nice. And what is the model? Are you buying goods from them and wholesaling them or are you an actual marketplace that's kind of taking a take rate on on uh, helping them sell their own goods what what yeah it's it's set up on a commission uh, basis so basically we'll take a commission on any items sold um and then a portion of that commission goes back to the uh property partner or space partner almost like an affiliate for for creating the environment and driving the sale and then there's also you know there's marketing uh, fees for like sharing the data around clicks, conversion, customer pathing, collecting reviews, um, stuff like that. Got to monetize that first party data these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then um, on the startup side, um, you know, to the extent you're comfortable sharing any, any metrics on how big you guys are. And then that kind of ties into, um, you know, are you going to go the venture capital route? Are you guys going to bootstrap this? And where are you on, on that? Uh, always exciting journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, um, I, I can't share any revenue uh, numbers because um, we are uh, likely going to be kicking off. I guess essentially, the other question, we're, we're probably going to be doing our, we've raised uh, an initial round of funding. We're probably going to raise another round in Q3 because uh, basically we're waiting to hit a specific threshold to get uh, before we go out and raise. Uh, uh, with a number, with a number in mind, um, we are doing, so the, the way that I've approached it is originally I was bootstrapping the business. Um, and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to like build Shopify stores for like all these properties and have a centralized backend. And like, you know, it's a pretty asset light model. Um, I actually don't think I need to raise money. And then at, the more I got into it and the more we were building these things, I realized that, uh, Shopify is, great and it's an it's a fantastic platform but there was some rigidity in like how that we couldn't really work around like i basically wanted like a thousand different front ends in one centralized back end to manage everything and shopify is very very much built around like one front end 
to one back end. And so we realized that we were going to need some technology built. Uh, and so we went out and raised a pre-seed, uh, which had no institutional money. Uh, it was only uh, angels and, I mean, really almost all entrepreneurs uh, is who we wanted to, to raise from. And so we did that. Uh, we closed that in January. Um, we've used that to invest in the technology and scale a bit more. And now we're at the point where um, we're sort of seeing the true scale and potential with the idea of native retail. And like, you know, we've signed up over 120 brands in a very short amount of time. We've signed 30 property groups. Some of these property groups are huge, you know, like uh, Lark Hotels is like 35 hotels um, in uh, the Northeast. We work with Avant Stay. They have like 500, 600 homes in the US. They're adding 50 homes uh, every month. They just raised a ton of money. We work with Mint House, which is sort of <clears throat> this new brand of apartment hotels where <clears throat> the hotel rooms basically have like, you know, they have like a full living room, full kitchen, full bathroom. Like you have the space of an apartment, but they manage it like a hotel. Um, yeah, we've just seen a ton of interest in the market. And so now, uh, now we're, we're going the VC route because like, I, I don't, you know, we don't want to undercapitalize the idea. It's a really big vision. We basically want to be the everywhere store. Um, <laughs> like we want to be powering shoppable experiences anywhere where someone's natively using a product. And when you take that really far out there, like that does mean car rentals, you know, and, um, when you can like natively use a car, it does mean things like, uh, going to ski resorts when you're using, uh, boots or gloves or skis, fishing charters, when you're using rigging gear, rods, uh, reels, uh, staged homes, we've signed co-working spaces that we're starting to launch with. We've done restaurants where we're making like the olive oil shoppable and the ceramics and, uh, even getting into uh, selling uh, wine, we're starting to like test, uh, which is you have to be really tricky with the sale of alcohol. So there's some technical things we're, we're working through. Luckily, one of the co-founders of Drizzly is actually an investor in Manoa. And so we have some good <laughs> we have some good experience there and people we can learn from. But like we really want to be everywhere and just be the platform that makes it easy to make a physical space shoppable. Uh, easy to set up products, easy to bring those products into your space and easy to facilitate commerce. Um, and so that's like a really big vision. And so in our next round that we're going to be going after, like we are going to go the venture route because um, we want to really get after it. I mean, there, there's a big network effect here, right? Like the more spaces you work with, the more purchasing power you have, the more guests you're getting in front of. Um, yeah. And so, but you know, I, I think, uh, Scott, you have a lot more entrepreneurial experience than I do. So that's sort of just the perspective that that uh, we've formed as we've been going through this. Um, who knows? We can talk again in, in uh, a couple of years and I'll, I'll tell you whether or not that was the right decision. Yeah, the, it, it's interesting. I, I mentor a lot of first time entrepreneurs and you and I've had a lot of sessions and, uh, you know, everyone always goes through this kind of similar journey where I, you know, it could never take more than five people to build this idea. And then suddenly you're like, where, where I think everyone misses it is the go to market. You know, so if we kind of think of your TAM just in the hospitality space, um, you know, I could see you could put a hundred salespeople against this and not even make a huge dent in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the go to market always is like where I think a lot of first time folks have a bit of a blind spot um, unless they've been in a, you know, a B2B sales company where, where, you know, it, it just is a big lift to go, you know, you have this funnel where you're, you know, every day someone's going to talk to 
20 to 50 people and then they've got a conversion rate and yeah. they've got a long for, pipeline and you know that for us it's, the, it's more on the account management and customer success side like there's just yeah. uh so many properties and we want to manage the store as well like these the, the stores need optimization um like it, it can really change the the economics of the property right like so talking about that property we have this converting at 25 percent it's like again one out of every guest and one of every four guests is buying something they're earning commission on that like that changes that totally changes the economics of operating their space. Mm-hmm. Um, like you get to the point where the commissions outweigh the, or are larger than the initial cost you invested in like furnishing the environment. So we spend a lot of time with properties sort of thinking through their amenities, thinking through uh, brand integrations, what they should bring in. And so it's really on that, like sort of um, those are things that we don't want to like make self-service or automate it. Cause we're learning a lot. And so it's really about beefing up that team. On the business development side, we've been very fortunate where we just get a lot of referrals. Like a lot of our brands aren't just in one hotel, you know. So if you work with like uh, a ratio coffee, they make like these beautiful coffee machines, we'll work with them in one property. And then they're like, wait a minute, can you make me shoppable in like these five other properties? Like we're also there. Um, And so then we'll be like, yeah, sure. Like, can you introduce us? And so, of course, we need to staff up the the BD side because it's a com, you know, it's a solution. It's, it's, it's not a commodity. So you need like salespeople to sort of explain that. But um, yeah. for us, it's really kind of like getting, I think, account like customer success and uh, people to manage all the, the properties and the retail that's occurring. Yeah. It's another common theme is, uh, you know, the go to market surprises people and then you kind of get your head around the funnel and then you realize it's not a funnel. It's an hourglass. And it's kind of like, all right, we did all this work to get all these properties on. And then now, you know, how do we, get them from, you know, pilot to engagement, right, right, every right. room, every room optimized around one, every room optimized, you know, so there's like this, you know, there, there's always way more work in these things than, than you kind of anticipate when you, you're just kind of thinking yeah, you about need both. the flow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You need BD to go out and like service the opportunities. And then it, you, exactly like you're saying, like you, you could close all these deals, but if you don't have the infrastructure or the right processes to get people actually onboarded um, and set up and uh, manage well, then, yeah, that's good. I'll maybe I'll shamelessly steal that hourglass analogy. Yeah, I imagine it's key to keep that uh, hourglass like somewhat um, balanced too. Is the thing you don't want too much sand pouring in there until you have too, uh, uh, the right size vessel to catch it. Right. Yeah, and that's what we've been doing. I mean, we're barely even doing. We have a BD person, but she's like not reaching out to any new properties because we have her doing uh, basically like more of the customer success work right now and so it's like we're we're like you know and we're we're, we're growing because we're growing within the networks of our existing you know we're launching more of on stay homes more mint house properties and stuff but yeah um, sound sounds like you have some opportunity to uh expand through word of mouth from your existing partners yeah and that's uh, part of what I, I think in that transition going back to how this started like uh, thinking you're going to bootstrap it to be like all right i'll take some money but only angels you know i don't want institutional money it's not being like okay now i understand why institutional money exists it's like to, to pour a little gasoline on something that's that's you know working where you understand how it scales and to just get like the people uh in the right roles to make sure that you can get there more quickly yeah yeah it's nice though when you can raise the money when you've proven enough value that they know they're they're they are just paying to pour gasoline on it and not like prove the model out um, right yeah <laughs> the uh so 
kind of thinking forward, it seems like you have a lot of runway in hospitality. It seems like, like obviously there's the, all the sort of in-room experiences, but you know, per the other examples, like you're also renting a car in that, on that vacation and you're doing some like fun activities. And it seems like you can expand in all those areas is your vision right now to kind of stay in hospitality or like, does this have a play in like wildly different, um, uh, use cases that we're not even thinking about yet. It it has plays in a variety of use cases, but it's it can be very tempting um, to get distracted. You know, it, like it'd be very tempting to like get into a bunch of new verticals. So we we were actually um, we were approached by like a sports complex that this huge sports complex in like Atlanta um, that has a bunch of like basketball. Uh, courts and like baseball fields and and it's like a training complex where they wanted to put together a program where it's like we want people to be able to buy like the basketballs that they're using or uh, try different baseball bats and then the one the baseball bat that they like they can just order and so um, and then it I mean every category almost has a different application of native retail like Amazon just opened a uh, salon <laughs> right. Scott uh, and I are of, actually booked to fly over to London and get our, our dues. Oh, I would love to. We'll have to. I'll have to check in with you after you do that. But like that's native retail in a beauty environment. Right. And so oh, and I think that's why they did it. Like, I, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I think it's an opportunity to get into that like professional um, beauty product line more so than they're trying to monetize the service of cutting hair. Yeah. Yeah. And so th- there's a ton of different. uh Every category has its own its its own native retail use case. We're focused on hospitality. I I just believe on I just believe in I think focusing is incredibly important. And so it's like let's conquer one hill and then move to the next hill and then get onto a bigger hill and then get to the a bigger mountain and then you know go from there. And so the the short term is certainly hospitality, but there's 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 lots of applications. Yeah, uh, I've read about that focus. I've never tried it myself, but I, I've I've heard it's been successful for others. Yeah, me too. <laughs> That's uh, well, awesome, uh, Mark. It, we could talk about this all night, uh, but it has happened again. We have used up all of our listeners' allotted time. Um, as always, if there's any questions or comments that folks have that are listening to this podcast, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or our Facebook page. And as always, if uh, you enjoyed the show, it's a great time to jump over to iTunes and uh, leave us that five-star review you've been meaning to do. Mark, we really appreciate you taking time uh, to, to be on the show. And if folks want to find you online, what's what's a good place for them to look you up? Yeah, no, it's been great to, to be here. You could find us uh, at MinoanExperience.com. Uh, you can email, say hello at Minone Experience, uh, if you're interested in uh, learning a little bit more. Awesome. We will put both of those in the show notes. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 